Good to be with you all this morning. My name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. A couple of things I want to make you aware of before we jump into Romans chapter 2, but you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24. Uh, we do have a new uh, texting phone number that if you have prayers through uh, the week or on Sundays in particular, you can text our deacons and they can receive that, pray for you, reach out. We'd love to know, especially in this season, how we can truly uh, be in this together as God's people and our deacon team in particular to be with uh, you all. Many of you are in groups and that, that is wonderful and often having somebody like a deacon pray for you and follow up is, is just great care as well. And so please use that number. It's on our website um, at uh, each of the times that we put up liturgy. We'll have that number there and in the past couple of emails. And if you aren't getting our emails, aren't getting uh, texts, we'd love for you to be able to sign up for regular updates as well. Many of you are new to Church in the Square, even through this uh, global pandemic and not meeting in person. And so if you're not getting regular updates yet, you can also go to our website. Each one of the liturgy pages that we uh, put up, if you go to our page and then uh, Sunday's page there, uh, you'll be able to find where to fill out uh, your information so you can have regular updates. With that being said, let's uh, consider God's word together today. Uh, and in a manner of doing so, I, I wonder if you've ever noticed how we can often divide the world into two different kinds of people. And perhaps one of the most consistent ways that we divide the world into two distinct groups of people is that often we think there are good people and there are evil people. There, there may be nuances in different cultural uh, subcultures about how uh, it's divided, different subsets and different uh, parts of the world, uh, perhaps except for some uh, Eastern perspectives, though throughout the global community, we often have these different perspectives of good and, and evil. But generally, we see through this sort of moral bifocal. And the first readers of the New Testament were uh, certainly susceptible to this really simplistic view of the world or anthropology. See, since Jews had been chosen by God to be his chosen people, those he had set apart for his purposes uh, on earth, through the years they began to see themselves as morally superior to others. In the language of the Bible, Jews thought they were holy and righteous and that the Gentiles or every other nation were spiritually unclean and unrighteous. Imagine the tension than experienced when Jews and Gentiles found themselves in the first century church in Rome, gathering together. Can you imagine this? Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, religious and irreligious, good and evil, worshiping the resurrected Christ as the unified people of God. By the way, Every church should feel this kind of tension of all tribes and tongues and nations and peoples and groups coming together as, as different uh, groups, members of different communities, and yet all drawn together by the work of the resurrected Christ. In fact, we may look around one day when we're really gathered back in the same room with each other and believe there may be no other reason why we are connected except for Christ. There may be no other similarities between us except for Christ. He is our ultimate unifier. See, this was the context, this was the situation and mindset of Paul's original readership of what you and I now know as the book of Romans. And old habits die hard. It's within this sort of binary view that many of Paul's readers would have had 
in that kind of world that Paul makes his case in Romans 1.16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Jesus is for the Jew and the Gentile. So from our earthly vantage point, the gospel is for the good and evil person. In, in the Bible, these categories are less about who is or isn't evil, but rather two ways of seeing evil manifest. What, what, what we mean is that there's, there's one view. The first is that there's through lawlessness or irreligion. And the second is a legalism or religion. Both are evil, but both manifest or look differently. Paul has taken great care in the first two chapters of Romans to be clear that both of these people, the lawless Gentile and the legalistic Jew, both desperately need and are graciously invited to take Christ. The gospel then is for the shameful and shameless sinner, and the gospel is also for the supposed saint. We learned last week that we are beautiful and yet broken. There are good and evil people then. We are all good and evil. We are made in God's image, yet totally depraved. Pastor Scott Sauls summarized uh, this particular condition in his book, From Weakness to Strength, which has been a personal help to me in the past couple of weeks. He says that the Bible knows the human condition well. It reveals that in each of us, there is a potential for great good and potential for tremendous evil. We are both good and evil, reflections of God and rebels against God, beautiful yet broken. Now, this may be simple to admit in a kind of casual sense, right? Everybody says, well, no one's perfect. We use this kind of language consistently, don't we? That nobody's perfect. Nobody does everything right all of the time. But when we say no one's perfect, what exactly are we talking about? Because I think essentially we're saying, don't hold me accountable to every one of my mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. It can potentially be a kind of false humility when we concede that we are imperfect. But the Bible goes well beyond conceding that all human beings make mistakes. To say we are beautiful yet broken is to say along with Dr. Tim Keller, what he has said on multiple occasions, that we are both deeply sinful and deeply loved. He writes, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. I think God is inviting us today to more deeply consider and understand this reality as the church, as men and women, as brothers and sisters. See, Paul is going to talk to us about hypocrisy, particularly about the hypocrisy of his Jewish readers and subsequently their desperate need for salvation through Christ alone. You see, Christians need the gospel for the very same reasons that Paul will tell his boastful Jewish readers, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, hear hear this, track with me here. Just because we know the gospel doesn't mean we no longer need the gospel. Just because you know it, just because you have some of the content, some of the composition of the gospel memorized, and it even is maybe a habit for you to consider the things of the gospel, just because we know the gospel doesn't mean we no longer need it. In fact, just the opposite. The more you know of the gospel, the more you realize 
you need it. Just because we understand the gospel doesn't mean that we no longer need to daily, moment by moment, walk in light of the gospel. And so by God's grace, this is where I believe God will take us today and help us in this. So hear this, Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on work and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These are the very words of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful as always that we get to come to your word today. We get to be nurtured, we get to be enriched, we get to be woken up to the things of God through your word. And so help us today, help us to be attentive, help us even in the midst of the unique ways in which we are going through and and being the church uh, on Sundays. Uh, Father, would you help to encourage us in this, sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, make us ready to take up action so that we might continue to be the church through the week, that we might be brothers and sisters. We may care for one another well. We may worship you out of a gladness of our heart. We may speak the truth to the world, the gospel, those who we come into contact with. Father, we pray you'd nurture us. Would you heal us? Would you bind us up? Would you encourage us? Would you do all of these things that you're so faithful and gracious and loving to do as our Heavenly Father? And and thousands of other things, Father, that we... Uh, trust that you do that we don't even know about, nor are we wise enough, or do we have enough faith to even ask for. Father, we pray that you would do what only you can. Build up the people of God. Build up your church today. Help us, Father. May we confess sin as we are convicted by your Spirit. May May we grow in the knowledge of your holiness and of your beauty, and then may we just respond in worshiping you. Father, we pray we wouldn't have a good plan put together today for tomorrow. We pray you'd change us on the spot, that you'd make us more humble as we're confronted by your word. We pray you'd make us more generous as we come to your word. We pray that you would give us more faith as we're gathered in this way. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse us of a guilty conscience and lead us in a way that is honoring to you. So help me today, God, to be clear and responsible with your word. And as always, help us, Father to respond with obedience, with joy, and with humility to your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is continuing to speak uh, primarily to his Jewish readers uh, here about the law. The law, if you remember, is shorthand, really, for all of the rules and regulations that God laid out for his people, particularly given to Moses, but also throughout the prophets to the people of Israel. So we think about the Ten Commandments along with about 670 other rules, regulations, laws, ways in which God has communicated his counsel, his desire. And and it's the whole counsel then, the whole uh, putting together of what you and I now know as the Old Testament. This is what 
Paul is referring to. This is what would have been conjured in the minds of his first readers. And if you remember back to Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul was actually anticipating a particular concern from his Jewish readers, really a presumption from those readers about what Paul was teaching. Look, move your eyes back up to Romans 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul has had just previously, at the end of chapter 1, laid out a number of ways people had sinned in a very clear and lawless way. From gossiping, to disobeying parents, to living without faith, to being foolish, Strictly religious Jews then would have presumed they were innocent of that entire list. You remember us considering this, going through that and easily thinking about a friend, a neighbor, or somebody who they had heard about who had broken that particular mandate of God, but never asking the Lord, is that true in me? Is this something that I'm guilty of? But Paul tells them, he draws their attention with this wonderful literary device. He says, you, you have no excuse. You have judged your Gentile brother and sister, and you do the very same things, Paul says. So Paul picks up this particular thing from verse 1, this this diatribe, this, this kind of literary device, and he presses it all the way into verse 17. Notice how he continues the language. Look again, chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So in verse one, we kind of understood just by general context that Paul was referring to a, a Jewish reader, maybe specifically, but likely a general collection of them. Paul, Paul is now clear then in verse 17 that he is speaking about Jews. It says, you yourself call yourself a Jew. He uses this common literary device. In, in English, we know it as like an if-then clause, right? And here in the Greek, it has the same kind of of presumed truth to it. So it's not a question. It's really a way of making a case or making a statement. So Paul is essentially saying, you are a Jew and you know it. Or as one commentator put it, that the construction implies the truth of what is supposed. Then Paul speaks about the behavior of these Jewish readers in order to give them this scathing picture of themselves. And this is what the scriptures always do. Right? It shines brightly to us the truth and beauty of who God is, but it's a reflection back to us of our own souls as well. It's like a mirror that tells us the truth about who we are. And so Paul is doing this for his readers. He's actually specifically going to attack a presumption, one of which he's laid the groundwork for in the previous portion of chapter 2. He will be helping his readers see that just because they are Jewish does not mean that they are innocent before God. Just because they are Jewish does not mean that they are innocent before God. We might say it this way, that because there is good about them does not mean that there is not evil or terrible evil within them. Just because there's good about them, about who they are, does not mean that there is not terrible evil within them. And what Paul wants them to see, and I believe by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God desires for you and me to see for ourselves is the conclusion of that particular consideration, is that we can't hide behind our virtues in order to dismiss our need. We cannot hide behind our virtues in order to dismiss our need. See, everything that Paul says in verses 17 and 18 is grounded 
in a kind of national pride, their, their eth- ethnic classification as the chosen people of God. This is the source of deep arrogance and pride, which then has led to the self-assurance on their part, because pride always leads us to self-assurance. They are proud of their Jewishness for a few reasons, according to this passage. We'll look at three of them. First, they pride themselves, notice in verse 17, on relying on the law, or in their relying on the law. See, while one reading of this might look really noble, that they're grounding their lives in God's word, in actuality, there is a level of comfortability that they have, or casualness that they have with the law, one should never enjoy, that should never actually exist. See, one day Jesus warned his listeners this in John 5, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. There's this kind of unsettling truth about God's word that before the law, before God's word is a friend to us, it is an accuser. Before God's word can even be a friend, before the law can be a friend to us, an ally, if you will, it is first our accuser. Paul says that the law accuses, or rather in his language, reveals sin. This Jew that Paul has in mind doesn't see the law accusing him or her of any wrongdoing. It is merely something they rest upon. That's what that language of rely upon. They rest upon that for which they have gained special access or special favor with God. See, God gave us the law, they might say. This is the way that makes us special. This is, this is why we're innocent for him. He gave us this great gift of the law. Therefore, we rely on the gift, not the giver. It is not, then, the law, a word which they submit to, but a word which they forcibly make submit to them and their purposes. They use the law for what they desire. Secondly, they pride themselves in God. Again, this may sound like worship, but that's not what the context is telling us. Paul uses the word boast, and the context and language make clear that what is in mind here is a type of boasting and exclusivity. In, in an almost cavalier sense, that Yahweh was their God. It's like they're saying he's our God, implying he's not your God to the Gentiles around them. But their selection as God's people, the, the tragic irony in this is that their selection as God's people was always meant to be God's possession. That's Deuteronomy 14 too, that they were chosen to be God's possession, not theirs. He, he not theirs. They, they reversed the script. It's like those t-shirts that used to be in vogue that says, Jesus is my homeboy. And in doing so, that, that what we can do and what was taking place here in this particular passage is that the fullness of God's character and his glory is being missed for a kind of casualness, a kind of presumption, a kind of way of seeing ourselves as deserving of the gift and glory of God. See, he's not a God to be possessed as some personal badge of moral superiority. He is the God to be feared and worshipped and adored for who he is. Thirdly, why, how they're priding themselves. Remember, they've prided themselves in relying upon the law. They prided themselves in, in their exclusivity with God. And thirdly, they pride themselves in knowing God's will and approving what is excellent. That's verse 18. This is what actually feeds their judgmentalism within this community, which has been kind of going on. And Paul has been on attack of this in the entirety of chapter 2. Because they have the law and pride themselves in possessing it and possessing God, they know the difference between right and wrong. 
They have an insight, if you will, into the moral reality of the world that God has given them. As a result, then, instead of being being led to worship and gratitude, as a result, they are led to mean-spirited comparison and even being critical towards others. Paul actually addressed this principle that he lays out here generally. He addresses it directly, head-on with the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8.1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess, possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So knowing God's will and being able to approve what is excellent has puffed up Paul's Roman readers in a similar fashion to his Corinthian audience. And this is something we're certainly susceptible to as well. Instead of allowing the gifts of God to transform us to be generous worshipers of God, we transform the gifts of God into things we are spiritually entitled to. This is the soil which boasting grows in. A pride in the gift of the law, pride in the exclusivity of God and pride in their knowledge. It is a sinful self-assurance. To help us see the fullness of this devastating nature of moralism, because that's what begins to now spring up from this, Paul stays in this if-then clause construction, and he continues to help clarify the misguided nature of this religious perspective. Look at verses 19 and 20 in Romans chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20, Romans chapter 2. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see that the religious person sees themselves as a guide, a light, a teacher. Their pride has led to a particular self-understanding. It's changed the way that they view themselves. This is what pride does. It changes the way we view ourselves. An understanding, supposing that they are good and therefore can ignore the evil that is lurking in them and they can see only the evil in other people's hearts. They are special. And therefore this sentiment calcifies into a self-concept in which they are morally superior to those around them, especially their Gentile friends and neighbors. See, they are guided everyone else is lost. They shine light. Everyone else is in darkness. They instruct. Others are foolish. They teach. Others are immature. Do you see? They're spiritually entitled. They are boastful. They are self-assured. They they fail to admit that evil lurks within their hearts. They see the world divided into groups of good people and evil people, and they have deemed themselves good. Consequently, the Bible itself becomes very dangerous in the hands of such a perspective. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is a sense in which the more you know about it, that is the Bible, the more you know about the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. When we don't apply the scriptures to ourselves first, the scriptures become weapons to us in order to puff up our pride and to tear down other people whom we deem lesser than or evil, unlike us. I wonder if you see it. Likely pride for us is settling in different places. It's finding rich soil somewhere else. Perhaps you pride yourself in the good family that you come from. Perhaps you pride yourself in growing up in the church. Perhaps you pride yourself in not committing the sins that other people commit. We, you, you may hear, we may hear someone talk 
about their substance or sexual addiction, the loads of debt they may have, the anger in their hearts, their lack of self-control. And instead of empathy and prayer, we choose pride. We may be looking at someone, whether it's their social media feed or a conversation with them or just stories we hear about them, that they're not going through the global pandemic as well as we are. And therefore, we judge. Instead of being empathetic and drawn to prayer for them, we sort of pride ourselves. God, thank you for not making me like one of these weaklings going through the pandemic. I'm really going through it in a strong way. Thank you, God, that you haven't made me like them. This is what's going on. This is what's taking place. They are evil. You are good. This is a lethal oversight because the spiritual blindness gives birth. It always has an offspring to it. This kind of spiritual entitlement, it always gives life to hypocrisy. Pride leads to boasting. Boasting leads to moralism and moralism always leads to hypocrisy. Let's be clear. Paul is not saying that it's bad to be Jewish. Paul is not saying that it's wrong to come from a godly home. Paul is not saying that any of these things are wrong, that that give them information, knowledge of God, the scriptures, the law, and obeying God's law. That's not wrong. That would be silly to think otherwise. The problem is when we boast and when we rely upon these things. The problem is when we glory in and hope in anything other than God. See, this reliance and boasting comes from a presumption of specialness that we've considered throughout chapter two. You see, in dismissing evil and highlighting the good in our hearts, we deceive ourselves. And that dismissal leads to hypocrisy. And that's where Paul takes us next in verse 21. So look at it with me, church. Verse 21 through 23. You then, he says, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. This is, this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> Through a series of questions, Paul exposes the lethal nature of moralism and hypocrisy. For clarity, moralism is not just an issue for the church, not just an issue relegated to Christians. Moralism is taking good things and making them into pathways to the good life or to salvation. In other words, it's it's saying that doing good makes me good. This is such a tricky thing because I think left to ourselves, we consistently believe that idea that when I do good, it makes me good. This is such a basic and natural concept to us as human beings that, that Dr. Keller claims that moralism is the biggest religion in the world today. It's a comprehensive understanding about how we believe that the world works and how the good life or salvation works. But the biggest problem with moralism among a host of issues isn't, is rather that it can't deal with the evil that's in our hearts. See, moralism's remedy for every mistake you make, every evil or persistent sin is to just try again. Try it again. In the face of evil, moralism tells us, give it another shot, work harder, stop doing and thinking evil and start doing some good. But, but, but let's just be honest. 
if I have bad thoughts, if I have faults and broken loves, if I behave in ways that are detrimental, then my thinking, my, my feeling, my loving, my actions, those are problems, not solutions. And I can't reframe my problems as solutions. That doesn't make any sense. I need help from outside of myself. I cannot be my own savior. I need saving. This is what leads us to buy into narratives that are, that are consistently woven in, in all kinds of different ways throughout our culture and different cultural subsets of self-assurance and of pride. We have to get puffed up on ourselves, on false knowledge and false hope to avoid or even ignore or numb ourselves to our own brokenness. Paul specifically teaches that this brokenness and this foolishness of moralism surfaces in hypocrisy. Now, let's just be honest. Hypocrisy is always tricky to talk about. It's one of those qualities that we effortlessly recognize in others, but almost never see in ourselves. This reality led the great uh, Mexican poet, Jose Emilio Pancheo, to say, we are all hypocrites. We cannot see ourselves or judge ourselves the way we see and judge others. But hopefully, what God's word has done specifically here in verses 17 through uh, 20 and on now into 21 through 23 is how the soil or foundation for hypocrisy is tilled and poured through self-assurance. We are all susceptible to this. So let's think for a moment about what it is in this passage that teaches us or, or, or what is taught to us here about hypocrisy. First, I think we learned that the hypocrite refuses or rather teaches others what they themselves refuse to learn. The hypocrite teaches others what they themselves refuse to learn. Look at verse 21. Paul asks you then who teach. Do you teach yourself? The, this principle was made famous recently by Jerry Bridges, who consistently said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Bridges wrote in his book, The Discipline of Grace. To preach the gospel to yourself then means that, we, that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. I remember a number of years ago, preaching a sermon on being generous and being a good steward with our money and going to the scriptures and teaching the church at that particular season of ministry about being good stewards with their money. Church, at that time, I was in significant consumer debt and I didn't share it in that sermon and no one in my life knew about it. That, that's hypocrisy. I wasn't teaching myself. I wasn't preaching and learning the principles that I was teaching and communicating to others. And it's not just about being in some sort of official teaching capacity. This is about espousing ideas and doctrine, which we refuse to incorporate or submit to in our own lives. One way I see this in our church and in many uh, different Christian settings is that more, more and more often when it comes to our concept of community, we talk and teach a lot about the merits of vulnerability in community, but we often refuse to endure the cost which vulnerability requires. So we speak about vulnerability, we speak about confession, we speak about the power of these things, and yet we, we aren't willing, we, we, we aren't actually learning and teaching ourselves these wonderful moments of trusting God with our story and to being vulnerable in community, and that's what it requires. See, we teach others, but we refuse to learn, and that's hypocrisy. 
Secondly, the hypocrite preaches a moralism which they themselves refuse to obey. Paul, Paul writes in, in uh, verse 21 on into 22, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? See, it's a vital lesson for every preacher, but really any follower of Jesus to practice what you preach. That's what Jesus warned his listeners about in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds, Matthew writes, and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Can I suggest to you that this is a really strong temptation in parenting? We can abuse our position of authority in our children's lives in order to achieve comfort being morally lazy while expecting our children to be exceptional and live with distinction. So you teach your kids to not steal toys. Are you fully transparent on your tax return every year? Related to adultery, you may claim to love the fidelity of marriage and believe that that is such an important thing that is taught in God's word. You may even judge those who commit adultery or some sort of sinful act. But do you repent also of the lust that is in your heart and in your eyes? Because Jesus says we should and we must. We don't always practice what we preach, and that's hypocrisy. Thirdly, the hypocrite abhors sacrilegious behavior of which they themselves are guilty. So three different things that, that the hypocrite does here in this particular passage, that the hypocrite teaches what they themselves refuse to learn. The hypocrite preaches a moralism which they themselves refuse to obey. And thirdly, the hypocrite abhors sacrilegious behavior of which they themselves are guilty. Look, look at verse 22, the, the latter portion of it. You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, there are many ways we are repulsed by someone's lack of righteousness and holiness. And in this particular case, uh, Paul uses the example or instance of idol worship as his example or way of exposing this. Now, the Jew would have likely never stepped into this kind of pagan worship context and literally physically removed an idol from a temple like this. So Paul may be speaking of a secondary sense of thievery. Paul may be implying that some Jews are involved in the business and dishonest practices around the idol industry. They may never have worshipped, much less touched an idol, but have profited from them nevertheless. Paul says this is hypocrisy and theft. Think about someone claiming to be a Christian and yet working for a pornographic website. They may believe the principle that this is wrong and evil and, and may not even watch any of the videos or subscribe to any of the things that they are putting up on a website, but they are willfully profiting from this sinful industry, or perhaps maybe more close to home for many of us. What of a member of any community who abhors racism, but refuses to deal with the ways that cultural powers in general related to race and white supremacy in particular benefit them? That's hypocrisy. Sometimes we may say we hate a particular sin, but we're fine benefiting from its existence. That's hypocrisy. See, Paul concludes with sort of a summarizing thought in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So the basic premise of, principle of hypocrisy is this. The hypocrite boasts in the law they break. The hypocrite boasts in the law they break. And the Jewish mind was made up. 
They had a special standing with God because they had the law, because Yahweh was their God, because they saw right and wrong more clearly than other people. This self-assurance became their pathway to the good life and this system of salvation. That's, that's moralism here in this passage, which ultimately led to a blindness toward their own brokenness, a, a willful blindness even. They were good, others were evil. Paul exposes all of this as manifesting through hypocrisy. See, boasting was the beginning way of leading to all of this moralism and, and all the way up until this hypocrisy. And, and what's, what's wonderful is that Paul has actually uh, already laid out the groundwork for an understanding of God's character in the face of our sin, if we're willing to face it, if we're willing to look at this head on. See, this idea that God shows no partiality not only refutes the Jewish presumption and ours that we are special in God's sight, but also God's non-partiality reveals a lack of hypocrisy. Look again at verse 23. This boasting in yet breaking the law, look at this, dishonors God. More than that, it's blasphemy. Look at verse 24 now. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul carries on a theme from Ezekiel 36. And you know he's pumped when he's bringing something from Ezekiel, right? Here's what he says, Ezekiel 36, verse 21 and 22. But when they came into the nations, whenever or wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. See, the Lord's people, God's people, are to live to reflect to the world the nature of God. And in this case, in, in Ezekiel and also here in Romans chapter 2, in this case, they speak lies about God to all other nations by their behavior, by their boasting, by their hypocrisy, and particularly to the Gentiles. And this caused the Gentiles to sin, to dishonor God and to blaspheme him as well. See, hypocrisy dishonors God. Hypocrisy is blasphemy. Why? Because it is contrary to his nature and rebellious toward the imprint of his image upon our lives. Jesus explained hypocrisy this way in, in a scathing review of religious teachers of his day. Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Church, ultimately, hypocrisy is the misalignment of an outward and interior life. In the wider context, Jesus is saying that hypocrisy is a visible life which seems beautiful, but inwardly is unclean, lawless, and denies truth. But here's the good news about God. God is not a hypocrite. Can I get an amen? God is not a hypocrite. Perhaps this is really important for you to hear, to understand that God is not misleading. God is not inconsistent. God does not say one thing and do another. To be sure, we may feel like he is delayed in fulfilling his promises. We may not like his timing. We may not like the promises that he makes or that he keeps, but he is faithful. 
What we see, what we know, what is visible is always consistent with what is hidden about God. We might say that the beauty of God never oversells and never overstates his righteousness. God is never too good to be true. His glorious reputation never outshines the light of his presence. The stories about him in the Bible never speak too highly, never too lofty, never too great. They're never exaggerated. They don't embellish. They don't puff him up. He is who he says he is. The scriptures market the Father, Son, and Spirit with zero pretense, no polish, no pomp, and no presumption. He is who he says he is. The visible display of God is the exact representation of his nature. He is who he says he is. He is never too good to be true. He is always exactly as good as he has ever told us that he was. He is who he says he is. God is no hypocrite. Therefore, here's some good news. He can and does not only judge the hypocrite, but he offers her or him forgiveness and salvation. The one who is unhindered by your problems, who is not broken like we are, can save you and find you and free you and forgive you and heal you. You see, the reason we chose and choose the hypocritical life is we fear facing the reality of the evil within us. I know I do. I know I'm terrified to be fully known because I I believe that if I'm fully known, I won't be fully loved. That if you find out how broken and how much need there is in me, that you may not love me the same way that perhaps I think you do now. It's like the old preacher that said that if you knew what was in my heart, you'd never listen to me preach. But if I knew what was in your heart, I'd never preach to you. I think we know that to be true, and I think it scares us. See, we may not even know what that evil is. We're even scared to face what actually might be in our interior life. This actually requires community. And if you want to understand whether this type of self-reliance or self-assurance or boasting is alive in your heart, you can look at two places, your forgiveness and your relationships. You can look at your forgiveness, you can look at your relationships. If your habits of seeking and giving forgiveness is slow, and begrudging or non-existent, non-existent boasting and moralism and hypocrisy have blinded you. Because those who don't believe they need forgiveness are those who don't give it generously. Or looking at community, if you only confess the sins that you see on your own and you don't let anybody speak truth to you, that they don't convince you of, of some, with some PowerPoint presentation or all kinds of footnoted facts, but you actually trust them in community, that they love you and are speaking truth to you and are helping you to see things that you can't on your own. If you won't live in that space where you only confess sins that you yourself have figured out, you fail to acknowledge the brokenness, the blindness, and therefore remain in hypocrisy. What's going on beneath the surface is an acceptance of only half of our human condition, our brokenness, but not our beauty. That's right. It's kind of paradoxical, I think. See, paradoxically, our failure to face the evil and sin and foolishness in our hearts through forgiveness and community by way of the work of Christ is not a lack of knowing or acknowledgement of our evil. It is a failure to believe our worthiness in Christ. 
We actually understand and believe only half of Dr. Keller's words that we mentioned earlier. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you ever could dare hope at the same time. See, we know that sin is deep within us, but we don't know how to face it. We fear to face the worst of who we are that will only lead to devastation. We fear to be known will be to be rejected. We fear pain. We fear being fully exposed and learning things about ourselves that perhaps no one has ever known or we even ourselves have never known. But as rapper Jay-Z sang, cry Jay-Z. We know the pain is real, but you can't heal what you never reveal. See, hypocrisy promises to cover up your sin and shame, but it never can. Jesus promises to wash away your sin and shame, and he can forever. According to Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of this particular passage, there are three characteristics of a hypocrite that are taught here. A hypocrite has a theoretical relationship with truth. A hypocrite is complacent toward the truth. A hypocrite lacks self-examination. And and this hypocrisy and brokenness, as we search the scriptures, points us to Christ even. Even our brokenness helps us to see Christ because Jesus is the incarnation of truth. He came in human frailty in accordance with God's word. Jesus is zealous for the truth to the point of death. Jesus is fully vulnerable with and to his heavenly father, even hanging naked on a cross bearing the weight of the world's sin and shame. See, Jesus is the realest human being who ever lived and there was no hypocrisy in him. Jesus can heal hypocrisy because he is the incarnation of God. In him, truth and beauty, inward and outward, are in eternal harmony. Jesus heals our hypocrisy because he deals with the evil in our hearts through Love. Jesus heals our hypocrisy and empowers us to daily kill the sins of hypocrisy because he admits and conquers the tragedy of our sinfulness and yet loves and accepts us by grace at the same exact time. Jesus heals our hypocrisy because as the writer of Hebrews puts it, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, my brother, Jesus, my sister, Jesus, church, heals hypocrisy because Jesus is never too good to be true. He is the truth and beauty and goodness of God who has come in grace in human form so that you might become a human being again, made in his likeness, reframed and restored by his grace forever in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. Help us to believe it. Help us to live in a manner that is worthy of this calling Help us, Father, in the midst of all that is stretching and pulling and hurting and harming us and our world and our communities. Father, help us to be those in Christ who avoid this broken sin, this evil foolishness of hypocrisy, not because we're trying harder tomorrow, but because we're resting in you now, because we are finding our hope in you. So God, help us in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.